Restaurant Unstoppable, episode 919 with Dan Seidner and Joe Minch. A few years ago, we decided to revamp the way we kind of live in our restaurants, and it's kind of a new try to change the culture for our staff with the idea of changing the culture for the staff reflects to the guest uh, experience and that idea of happy people making people happy was, you know, bring your best self to work and other um, quotes or just even uh, core values that we've kind of revamped. And Dan was really the leader on all that. Are you ready for it factors, success stories, failures, and bombs of restaurant industry knowledge? Then join Eric Cacciatore and today's incredible guest as they share what it takes to become unstoppable. This episode is brought to you by Restaurant Systems Pro, and they are launching their first time ever 60-day pilot program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurateurs through the Restaurant System Pro software and setting up the systems for your restaurants. Fred will teach you recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, it, more butts and seats, and that's not it. If you are interested in this, head over to www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. www.restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And I have to say, I haven't come across a restaurateur using Seven Shifts that hasn't been completely satisfied. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communications, tasks, tips, and more all in one place. And because you are restaurant unstoppable, listeners, you get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven, S-H-I-F-T-S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. This episode is brought to you by Pop Menu. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with pop menu answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month, plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get your $100 off for your first month and to learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. With excitement, allow me to introduce to you today's guests, co-founders of Black Shoe Hospitality, Dan Seidner and Joe Minch. Dan, Joe, are you two feeling unstoppable today? 
I will never Stop ask that question, especially when I can get teamed up on. I get these weird looks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I just appreciate you guys making time for me. I know this was kind of a, a crazy day for you. We made it happen. I'm happy to be here. I cannot wait to dive into your story. But let's get that motivational, inspirational ball rolling with a success quote or mantra. Who wants to take it? Uh, so the mantra of Black Shoe Hospitality is... This is Dan on the mic. This is... Uh, yeah. Uh, the mantra of Black Show Hospitality is happy people making people happy. We've tried to distill it down to really the two uh, considerations are we try to find the right people, happy people. There are a lot of unhappy people out there for a variety of reasons <laughs> in, in hospitality and elsewhere. But what's our job? Our job is to make people happy. Mm-hmm. And that means that that implies a certain amount of flexibility it implies a mission of our goal is to is the whole experience, not just it's not just we're going to give great we're going to serve great food or we're going to give great service. We're going to make people happy, which means we're going to accomplish all of that. And we talk a lot about with our teams the the excellent experience of dining out and people being able to describe it as an excellent experience, which means from the moment they place the reservation or or call the restaurant, walking in the door. Uh, the experience with the bartender, the experience with the host team in the dining room, the course of food has to be great quality and, and uh, executed at a very high level, beautiful. Uh, then uh, the finishing of the experience, thanking graciously the guests, all of that. And that from beginning to end, it is an excellent experience. And so the idea of making people happy is just don't overthink it, but make sure every every part of the experience has been covered. Awesome. Do you want to reflect on that, Joe? Um, I think that, uh, you know, it's something that uh, a few years ago we, um, you know, kind of decided to um, revamp the way we kind of live in our restaurants. And it's kind of a new try to change the culture for our staff. But the idea of changing the culture for the staff reflects to the um, the guest uh, experience. And that idea of happy people making people happy was, you know, bring your best self to work and other types of um, quotes or just even uh, core values that we've kind of revamped. And Dan was really the leader on all that. So I think that's something that when it comes to mantra and talking about the core values and just our mission statement, that's Dan's, you know, real kind of. The one thing I would add to that and that I neglected to say earlier is this idea of happy people. Yes, we need to find happy people, but we need to create a circumstance. I think is what Joe is saying that the, ultimately the guest experience begins and ends with the employee experience, are people happy working here? And we, as the owners and operators of the business, need to make sure that uh, it everybody's happy. Uh, you know that we've given the tools they need, created environment, all of those things, so that people are actually happy. And then their job is pretty simple. Go make people happy. Yeah. Awesome. So great way to get this thing started. Where does it make sense to start sharing? I guess who wants to go first? Why don't we focus on you, Joe? Uh, when did you know that this was going to be your path? The, the restaurant industry was for you. I'm outside of a few um, simple jobs through early high school, um, working at a gas station, a couple other things that I did. Um, I started making pizzas when I was 17 and uh, haven't stopped since. So <laughs> I'm 53 now, yeah. so you can do the math. Yeah. But uh, so reflecting at your career, the the stops you've made along the way, was there one restaurant or a mentor that comes to mind that really helped form the chef you are today? I think I had a I had a passion for it because I really loved the jobs I had, especially working in the pizza place through high school, early college. But 
I had a family young, um, turned to my mom one day and just said, Hey, you know, I was in school for like a teaching career. My dad wasn't in favor of each of either of those. So I just kind of turned to her one day and just said, Hey, what do you think about me? You know, enrolling at the local, um, technical college, Milwaukee area of technical, Milwaukee area technical college, MATC. And, um, she just kind of gave me the thumbs up and, um, that's where it started as far as like professionally, you know, would you say was it? I think in your bio it says uh, Grenadier was your was that yeah the that first? was the first real job I had. Yeah. I mean I had worked in um, like at a Hands and a couple other places, but when I got into school after my about first semester, um, met one of the instructors was a waiter there, and he uh, just talked to him and ended up getting um, uh, a stage for a day, and then got hired on, and so through um, pretty much my. Um, schooling time and then beyond the, the next four years after that I was working at the Grenadiers which at the time was Milwaukee's premier restaurant it was a continental cuisine type place that started in the 70s and through the um, 80s and into the 90s and that's I worked there in uh, in 1990 and 91 through 94 and uh, um, run by a, a, a well-known chef from the local area uh, Knut Oppitz and he had mentored many many young um culinary students and stuff and just uh, was well connected throughout the culinary community but you know we were on the at the time the mobile guide was the big one so we were forced our mobile guide we were at one point on chicago's top 25 restaurant list and so there's a restaurant that was definitely a destination for a lot of people um and uh just gave a it gave a, a just a broad um array of cooking techniques and uh, working with seafood, especially that was one of our things that we really specialized in was seafood. So, would you say you transformed during this time? Were you was it a transformational or transformative experience for you? Or I think it was the perfect um, combination of going to culinary school and then having a job like that. Really, um, just kind of solidified the idea that this is a real career, this is a real lifestyle. Got it. So, if you could say there is one spot as a chef that you grew the most to set you up for success to go and and be your own boss right to to go open your own restaurants where did that happen for you um i think it was um after i left the grenadiers i opened a restaurant here in milwaukee called eddie martini's and that was uh um in 1994 95 and uh we um that was the first time of like you know have had no experience in opening a restaurant um the owner joe DeRosa, he um, I had known him for years working at a martinis, um, just basically opening that restaurant, you know, with really no experience in opening a restaurant, um, having the trust of someone who is well, um, regarded in the restaurant industry at the time, Joe DeRosa, he, uh, you know, had a series of, uh, uh casual restaurants called the Chancery. And then he basically got, uh, the Bartolotta name started in Milwaukee. He was a, the kind of the the, the money and kind of the idea behind putting Restaurante Barilada in uh, the Tosa Village here. I think I actually remembered that because Joe and his Joe and Paul they they partnered up and it was like what two thousand four I want to say ish. Um, no, they, they were already in business. Yeah, in um, it was the, the, my, my understanding is that Joe had approached Paul, but Paul was tied in with Spiaggia in Chicago, yeah. and then um, Joe was in New York. I think he was working some dinner theater, some kind of. Yeah resort type thing and then brought Joe back or, or, or lured Joe back to Milwaukee. And the, the thing is they both worked for Joe as high school and early college as far as start. working in the, in the chance yeah. end of things. Yeah. So, yeah. So 
one thing I remember, because I literally just talked to Paul yesterday, and when they came back, they were opening across the street from their mentor. Yeah, and Joe's was, office. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and I think they were worried about that. They're like, we can't you know, compete with our mentor. So they approached Joe, and they're like, and, he, and I think Joe asked them, how much have you guys gotten so far? How, how close are you to getting to what, what you need? And they're like, we're like maybe 50% of the way there. He's like, I'll give you the rest. Okay. I'll give you the rest. So they went to, they, they approached their mentor and said, we're afraid to open across the street from you. And he said, I'll give you the money to do it. <laughs> like that, if that's not a testament to someone's character. So talk a little bit about Joe and what he was to you and how he influenced who you were. Um, I think Joe was always, uh, he was probably one of the best businessmen that I've ever met. I don't know too many like businessmen outside the restaurant industry, but he's certainly um, good with numbers and just understanding through the finances the financials of a of a, a business just to what it's the business is saying and i think uh he always had a good pulse on what was uh trends and stuff like that i think when when i had worked with him trends were always things that we were looking at um in meetings or just kind of talking or he'd have this you know he'd be like hey go check this restaurant out it might have been somewhere else in the country and he's like are you traveling that way go check this restaurant out so um he always had a good uh pulse on what was going on around the country well connected um in it, he was part of the national restaurant association board i think like that so he was well connected throughout the country as well shortly after the about a year after restaurante opened that's when we opened eddie martini's um just up the road it's basically on the same street just across some railroad tracks in a river um but yeah they're uh two still staples in the tosa area here as far as like recognizes still some of the best restaurants in the area reflecting at your time working beside joe what were the biggest lessons he taught you that you you just that weren't even like on your radar before joining forces with him i think just he never seemed to lose his cool i mean you know he 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 get worked up or upset about stuff but he just never really lost his cool and i think that's one thing that um i've kind of Coming from the Grenadiers, where you're with classic old European German chef yeah, that isn't paid. afraid to throw something at you, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, to a guy that just is calm and cool, and like he never lets he never let you see him sweat, you know. Mm. And uh, what about the business? Like you said, he was he always had an eye for business and what was trending. But what about? Did he give you lessons on how to run a business, whether it's paying attention to certain numbers that you weren't paying attention to before, or just how to treat people? Yeah, I think with him, it was, you know, numbers were some things that, we, you know, was one part of it. But just him walking in the kitchen, and if he saw some arugula that was kind of wilted or kind of yellowing or something like that, he just would kind of pull you aside, just point to it. And he just always had that eye, and he just kind of, like, you know, it's like white glove everything. And I think that's one thing that just kind of noticing all the little details is what he was really good at. You know, if if it was a humid day in you're in the dining room he always was adamant about you know making sure that the the, the water pitchers on a little you know coaster or something like that and just all the different things that he did you do know you, just to kind of the details do you think you approach people differently today with now that you're in joe's position as the leader as the person who maintains the standards who puts the pressure on do you think you might have taken a little bit of an edge off like in a good way like not as i guess uh what's the word i'm looking for brass or just coarse like or do you think you're more gentle because of joe i think it, i think he complimented my my personality already and just kind of enhanced it yeah you know and i think through the years there's been other influences on the same you know outside the restaurant industry that as well that have influenced just kind of being a little more you know approachable kind of mellow 
I mean, in the restaurants, they don't call me chef. They call me by my first name. I just, it's one thing that I know that some people are like, you need the respect. I just, I don't go through thinking that my name, my title is necessarily what gives me the respect. It's having good relationships with the dishwashers, the stewards, up through the prep cooks to the executive chefs of our restaurants. Yeah. So we're taking a little bit of a different approach today because we have 30 minutes left with you, Joe, before mm-hmm. you have to, you have a hard stop in 30 minutes. Uh, I really want to get your perspective from back of house and what the journey of scaling Black Shoe Hospitality has been like from back of house. Because just from sitting here, I'm assuming that you're, you're partners because you complement each other. Safe to say? Yeah. Yes. Since you're wearing the chef jacket, I'm assuming your, your strength is in the back of house. Yes. And is it safe to say, Dan, that you're more front of house? Yes. Than, I, like, I, I am a restaurant guy who's trying to learn how to run a larger business. <laughs> yeah. So um, before opening Black Shoe Hospitality, or, I mean, I think your first restaurant within was Maxi's, right? Uh, 2007. Um, any other experiences between working with Joe uh, at what was it? Um, Eddie Martin Martinez. Eddie Martinez. Um, and what, what year was that when you started working with him? It was ninety four. We kind of started okay. by ninety five. We opened. I left there in ninety nine. Okay, so you had a good eight years between leaving there and then going on to do your own thing, Max's. Yeah. Um, through that time, I had I felt a little bit trapped there as far as like just I had a family at the time and didn't get the chance to go to the big city. So I left and went down to a, a country club or a resort, I'm sorry, down in uh, Lake Geneva area, which is kind of in between Milwaukee and Chicago, a little bit west of that. And uh, a lot of uh, touristy type, you know, resorts are down there and worked there for a couple of years. Um, and uh, actually, it was four seasons that I had worked there and then came back. And uh, um, that's when I met Dan. We um, came back to the Doros Corporation he was director of operations at the time, consulting, and I came back um, with the idea that we were going to kind of revamp this chancery brand that was getting a little tired. Um, in the in the and it was kind of like the time when the restaurant scene was just starting to fire up. I mean, it was you know two thousand four, two thousand five. No, chancery was Joe, your previous was, mentor's yep. restaurant. That's yeah, right. so cool. I also worked with Joe okay. Rosa much briefer time, but yes, okay. Um, so. I'm I'm tempted to kind of just continuing on your path just for a while because I want to sure. I want to give you an opportunity to speak to your perspective and I, and we have 30 minutes left with you. Dan, do you want to give him? I feel bad making you hit, hold that. Uh, don't worry do about you it. I'm good. No, I'm You're fine. good. Okay, just making sure. Yeah. Um, it's awesome. like having tongs in your hand. Or something. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so, <clears throat> Four Seasons is kind of. I mean, we got to talk about Four Seasons. I mean, it's talking about a, a, a hotel group or hotel. You said Four Seasons, right? No, there. I said uh, it was the it was. Uh, it was a country club called Bigfoot Country Club. Where did I hear Four I Seasons? Oh, you maybe it was, it was Four of the Seasons? The seasonal got, that's what place, I yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry, never mind. Yeah. No. So what was the name of the country club? Um, Bigfoot Country Club Bigfoot. in Fontana, Wisconsin. It's on what's Lake Geneva. Okay. Um, lake Geneva is a large lake that has multi, multi-million dollar homes on it. Got You're it. talking Wrigley Mansion, got it. Morton Salt, that kind of stuff would come up in vacation there. So during this time, was it different for you? Was it a new perspective? Was it a different culture? Did you learn? Oh, that was a completely different culture. Kind of the, it's the Chicago, Milwaukee, Wisconsin, Illinois battle. You know, you go, there's a, the highway that kind of takes you down there. If you're south of that, you're Illinois blood and you're still in Wisconsin. If you're north of that, you're Packer blood, not even Wisconsin <laughs> blood. It's just Packers. So how's the culture different between these, these uh, divisions? Was it? How's the culture different between these divisions? Um, you said there's oh, it's, it, I think that the, the the hard thing to get used to down there was just the seasonality of it was one reason I took the job because seasonality I had 
a little bit lighter winters and having a young family, I could be more of a stay-at-home dad. But uh, the summers were brutal with, you know, golf club and outings and that kind of thing all day long and weddings and the weekends. But the, the people that came up there, it was just hard to kind of that idea of like they're definitely they're, they were looking down at you a bit um, in that area. And it's just yeah. kind of um, doubting your skills or, you know, questioning you. And, you know, a lot of these people are from the Chicago area. So that idea of, you know, you can't cook as good as what we have down there. Some of it just say, this is our country, country club. Just cook me a steak and my walleye. That's all I want. You know, so that was a little bit hard to stomach. But yeah. it fit my lifestyle at the time more so than my culinary um, uh, ideas and future. Well, I mean, it was probably a different type. I mean, were you doing what, – what was the what was the work like? How was it different than what you were doing in the past? Um, it was, it was a, like I said, the lighter winters. You, you went down to weekends in the fall, but um, we were able to stay home and, and take care of my kids when they're young, kind of yeah. getting to school. At the time, my wife was, um, you know – developing her career after having family and stuff like that. So, um, they gave us that flexibility, but in the, in the summertime it's, you know, five in the morning till 11, 12 o'clock at night. And that was just all day long, kind of just go, go, go. Cause you'd have, like I said, golf outings, weddings, you have two, two restaurants to run a grill and a, and more of a high end kind of, uh, uh, dinner uh, spot. So, um, all right. limited crew, that kind of thing. You didn't have the resources that way. Um, it's hard to get a lot of staff, um, so or quality staff got it so in, in my mind i'm listening to you guys talking i'm also thinking about the best way to make our, our time together because i want uh i think what we can do and i'm just going to be transparent with the listeners i think from here we can start talking about when you guys cross paths and what your journey was like together and then joe when you have to leave i'll just pivot and focus on dan's come up how's that sound do you guys, sure does that work for you sure. guys yeah cool sure. all right so you guys cross paths at this time 2005 2005 yeah. yeah 2005 um what was your first impressions of each other do you remember like re- reflecting back at that time i think i think it was cordial we had we had, we had a lunch we had a lunch together at one of the at the at the chancery restaurant that we were kind of coming into and kind of an interview lunch and yeah. just kind of had a good time just chatting and stuff like that you know and i think that's kind of where it started okay um and I think we were both kind of excited to do something a little different. Um, I know Dan was coming out of kind of working in the wine end of things and stuff and working um, in that and kind of getting back into the restaurants and have a chance to make a difference and a change to a brand that, like I said, was getting tired. It was it was a brand that was well-respected and, and visited. They had at 1.7 restaurants in the Milwaukee area. And we wanted to kind of transform it into more of a of – a, uh, what you would see now, more of a gastropub kind of thing, but still at a very approachable, casual level. Got it. So, Dan, uh, from your perspective, when you at this point in your career, what was what was the the perspective from? Well, I mean, I I had previously owned a restaurant and had been in the business. We're we're about the same. I'm one year older than Joe, and we've both been in the business since we were in our teens. Uh, so I'd been doing it for a while, and I had an idea in my mind about wanting to start not just a restaurant, but a restaurant company. Uh, upon moving here, I moved here in 2004, and he and I met in 2005. I was working for Dros Corporation, uh, kind of helping with the Chancery concept. And so we worked together on this revision of Chancery and kind of an update of the Chancery. And in that process, I was impressed with Joe in a number of different ways. Um, certainly culinary skill, but uh, just a, a good, solid dude. You yeah. know, I mean... Uh, there are 
there are some very talented chefs out there who are not people you want to partner with. <laughs> and, you know, they're, they've got great skills, but it's just a crazy shit show He's, every day. Yeah. And that's Joe, you know, everybody knows Joe as one of the nicest, kindest people you've ever met. And so in addition to being an incredibly talented chef, she's good people. So yeah. that that's where I said, okay, this is somebody that I'd like to work with long-term. So, so Joe was already in the Milwaukee area. He's the Milwaukee You said guy. you you wanted to open a restaurant business in the, in this area, Milwaukee. What was it about Milwaukee that was appealing to it you? It was really a family decision. I, my wife was from the area. We were we had just had a child in 2003. So we moved from Colorado to Wisconsin to be closer to her family. And to be in a market where I, I wanted to open a group of restaurants, and uh, Milwaukee was a, a place that needed more restaurants, and the real estate was reasonably affordable. So Yeah. I think there – I don't know what the – was it safe to say Milwaukee was a smaller market then that needed room for growth or had a room for growth? Yeah, it was. It had. It was full of a lot of you know restaurants that opened in the fifties, maybe sixties. They were kind of at the end of their end of their life, and uh, it was that was kind of the right around that time is when the culinary scene here really took a new uh, took a new direction and a whole bunch of new restaurants opened within about a four two or three or four year yeah. span yeah there's markets like this right now in the country all over the place that are that were they were built like the turn of the the 20th century or the, i want to say the yeah the turn of the 20th century right yeah like and like Basically, these cities just got vacated to go to the bigger markets like New York, Chicago, Los Angeles. But the bones are there. Mm-hmm. And now that we don't need the big cities for opportunity anymore like we used to, I feel like there's just so much opportunity like this across the country with these moderate-sized cities that are just empty. And there's room for growth. So is that kind of what your mentality was or what the, the opportunity you saw in Milwaukee when coming here? It was that and it was also uh, there, there was, and this kind of flash forward now, things are, are very different nationally but uh the labor market was really good here too yeah. you could find people who wanted to work you yeah. know and cared about it they Which weren't necessarily worldly they hadn't necessarily traveled or had you know extensive culinary backgrounds but they were te- coachable and trainable and uh and they're again good people so yeah. we uh, i was great i had you know having worked in resorts previously in my career i was thrilled to be in a rock solid community beautiful so, so when did you guys first have the conversation of maybe there's an opportunity for us to partner together? I think it kind of came from, I had known during that time we were working together. I knew that Dan was kind of looking to open a restaurant. I wasn't necessarily a part of that. Um, but his, his um, employment abruptly ended, ended um, because they found out that he was looking to open a restaurant. Yeah. <laughs> and so, and that's, so we drifted apart a little bit, yeah. you know, and, but then when Dan was kind of getting closer to opening, um, Maxi's and there was a, another partner we had and Dan could talk more about that, but I, he, he had approached me cause I was still was in the drawers corporation and he just wanted to know if I, and at that point I was kind of done with all the time I had spent at the drawers corporation. It wasn't this like after the combined Eddie Martinis and then working in, the corporate end of things. It was just like, that was eight years of, about, yeah, about eight years of kind of working with them. And I was just like, this is, I got to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so wait, I want to make sure I heard this correctly. So you were working for this group of the, the, the country club consulting, correct? Is no, that, that, but was, you were consulting. Is that how you guys, I, I, 
I was never officially employed by the Duros Corporation, but Joe and I worked there together for over a year on the uh, on the reconcepting of the Chancery Restaurant. Chancery I was doing a few other projects too, but our primary focus was redoing these restaurants, which we got to a point where we were getting ready to pull the trigger on architectural and all of that. And Joe DeRosa just decided he wasn't ready to invest. And it was at that point that I got active looking around for other things. So Joe remained with the company after I left. Uh, but as soon as I had a, a concept lined up and a plan lined up, the first call I made was to Joe. Got it. Um, and there's two Joes in the story right now. Yes. Joe, your mentor. Joe, what's his last name again? Joe DeRosa. DeRosa. And then we got Joe Mintz, Mintz, Mincier. Thank yeah, you. Mitch. Yeah, Mitch. Thank you. So um, what I was curious about, you said something about along the lines of Joe, you said that when they found out Dan was looking to open a restaurant, they no longer wanted to work with Dan. Is that what I, that's what uh, I'm getting at. I, I, when you said Joe DeRosa never got upset, the first thing I thought of was where he's sitting across from table from me when he was calm, cool and collected and fired me on the spot when he found out that I was looking for other space. So, uh, uh you know, did, did he was, he never got angry. <laughs> get into the, the mindset of that. What, what, do you, what do you think his perspective was? Well, he was, again, I was kind of, I was in a consulting capacity, but I think he was hoping I was going to be the guy who was going to take over the business for him. He was getting, looking at retiring and doing other things. And I, I was, I was very interested in that possibility right up until he decided he just wanted to kind of milk the chancery concept a little longer and not reinvest. And I just wasn't prepared to represent that. Yeah. I, you know, I wasn't there to maintain. I was there to improve and grow. And again, I had this partner in Joe Minch who we had great ideas. And ironically, if you look around the market of Milwaukee now, the concept that he and I created has been copied in like three different ways. It's it's here now, and it's successful now. And we're talking about uh, Max's. No, we're talking about uh, the Chancery the Chancery. Chancery. Oh, we're yeah. redoing. The, re- uh, the reinvention. Yeah, which never yeah. happened. So so again, when, when that fell through, I went my own way and uh, uh, started working on a concept called Maxis, which I can fill you in later on the background of Maxis, but uh, it was knowing this market, uh, having learned more about this market, working with Joe and getting to know Milwaukee over last year and a half or so, I, I felt that this market really needed a good Southern-focused concept. Got it. There was a, a sort of a New Orleans-style place here at the time. But nobody that was looking at the broader spectrum of Southern cooking, and my opinion is that Southern cooking is the best of American cuisine. And so, and Joe hadn't worked specifically with Southern cooking, but as I talked with him about it, as he does it really every time we start a new, a new subject of food, he dove in and started getting excited about the food he was learning about. And uh, early on, we took the opportunity to travel and you know experience some of these things firsthand. And it just solidified both our love of that food and the fact that we thought it could work really well in, in any market in the United States, including Milwaukee, and also got to know each other even further and started to really b- build our, our working bond. So what were these early challenges for you guys when you first started working together when you're, when you're setting out to do your own thing, which was Maxie's your first restaurant together, right? The Southern Correct. restaurant. Uh, what was that like? Like what going, go take us through that, that journey of, okay, we're going to be working together to the, I think you guys weren't, you were the, the, own, the Originally, owner. Originally, I was the owner, and, you're along, behind, and yeah. Joe was the executive chef. He was always the person behind the food and, yeah. and the creation of the concept. But 
uh, he was not officially a partner until we opened in May of 2007. In January of 2009, he became a, a okay. full-fledged partner. I, I want to talk about that. But first, what was the, the, the opening like? What were some of the lessons? This is the, your first solo opening, correct? <laughs> we bought a lot of secondhand equipment with that thing. I mean, we've always been fighting the battle of, of money, and uh, you know, especially on that concept. We've spent. We always have these grand plans, or I have these grand plans of how to build out the restaurant. And unfortunately, it always affects the equipment budget. We actually had that conversation again this morning, um, and we, we made a few mistakes. I made a few mistakes in acquiring some pieces of equipment that almost killed members of our team. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's something to, say, to be said about being scrappy. You know, yeah. you need to figure out. There's always ways you can. You know, if there's a will, there's a way. You can get creative. You can turn over rocks. You can find things. Right? Sure, but at the same time. There's there's a, some cons to that too, which you don't you don't always know what you're going to get. Yeah. Right. Um, so really reflecting back at this journey, opening the restaurant, uh, what were your biggest challenges as first time restaurant owners? I feel like I feel like one part of it was you know well, you found some partners and that was something that was always bugging you. Yeah. When we got open, it's like how fast can we get these partners out of this? And I think that was your outside of. You know, just from the business side of it, you know, running the restaurant, we made some mistakes with trying to have, you know, this evening restaurant and then we opened for lunch and then we decided this is not working. Then we flipped back into just being a great restaurant at night and stuff. And so Maxie's fortunately was at a time when Southern cooking was really coming on the rise. You know, Sean Brock was kind of hitting the scene and a couple other um, Ed Lee and these guys were all kind of hitting the scene and stuff. And, and this was uh, Husk. You're talking about yeah, Sean Brock. Sean Brock. That yeah. was he was he was at McCready's then, yeah, and just yeah. this this idea of Southern cooking really, um, John Besh and a couple other you know, which is really kind of heating up the whole Southern cooking. And James Beard was starting to award um, you know chefs in the South for truly Southern cooking, not necessarily fine dining. So. That you was tell me I, James Beard hops on trends. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Yeah. But that was really the. I think that's where I think Maxie's was really. People were intrigued with what we were gonna, what we were doing. So they kind of, like when we opened the doors, the 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 restaurant bigwigs were kind of coming in and and hanging out, and the cool people were coming in and hanging out. Then they quickly realized that they didn't need to have to wear you know fancy clothes or suit and tie or dress up. They come in and it's like we were dressed in jeans and you know shit kicker boots and stuff like that. Yeah. But uh, I think you know the two sides of it was I think one of our the biggest challenges was like just getting the financials going. And I mean Dan yeah. really can talk more about that because we had he had at the time had numerous partners in there. It was just like you could just see that was how how quickly can we get out of that partnership? And I think I think since then. We've been able to do this on our own. That's why we open up with shoestring budgets and, you know, we have to buy that piece of restaurant equipment that we may know fails in a couple of years. But, you know, we've we've grown with our, our own money instead of having to worry about partners. Yeah. So going back to this idea, so you had other partners when going into Max. Financial partners. Financial yeah, they were silent, but silent they, they, they helped us get the project off the ground. And how big of a project was Maxi's? It was big. It was we uh, all, all in. Uh, well, it's a 160 seat restaurant on two levels. Uh, the buying the building. So two of our restaurants we own the real estate. Two of them are leased. In the case of the ones that we've owned, we took existing properties that were not restaurants, gutted them, started all over again. That's a very expensive process. Yeah. It's not necessarily what I would recommend. Um, Is that something you were aware of when you started to do it the first time? It was enamored, in both cases, enamored with location and uh, 
probably should have thought a little further on it. I mean, Maxie's, I, I don't regret Maxie's. Uh, Story Hill, honestly, is a restaurant. We own that real estate. I still think that restaurant could be even more successful than it is today if it were in the right location. But uh, it is it is a beloved restaurant. It's one of the most popular restaurants in Milwaukee. But I still think day-to-day we could do better if we were in a different location. Got I mean, location does matter. But at the same time, like if you dump money into a location that is just out of reach, you can't pay back the, the, you know, the notes you owe on it, then... That's also another challenge, right? So you got to find that balance. Yeah. Well, so with these early partners, what, was there a challenge with it? Was it there- Every, no. In fact, most of them didn't even live in Milwaukee. They were primarily friends from college, a uh, bunch of guys who went to Wall Street and made a couple bucks and were ready to uh, help a little. Um, but it was intentional that we we went with small. I think the minimum investment was ten thousand dollars. I don't think anybody put in more than I think seventy thousand dollars was the biggest number. Uh, we did that because we did not want we did not want somebody walking in the building, uh, you know, who telling us how to make our salads and you know. So do you I'm going to a- take a case of wine with me on the way out, kind of thing. This was we we it was a business. Joe and I were in charge of the business, and the investors were just waiting on their check, which they got. Uh, they got, and then then it was just us. Were there things you did to make sure that was the relationship? Are there things you can do to make sure that's the relationship? Sure, no. contractually, you yeah. said it. The business operating agreement has to be very specific. Was this on your radar at this point? I had some good legal advice. I'd also been involved in a business partner. I'd been part owner of a restaurant out in Colorado, and uh, learned some some not hard, hard lessons, but learn some lessons about what I would do differently in the future. Okay. Operating agreements on a business are, are incredibly important. It is something you want to really think about because it's how the big questions are answered. Uh, if, if for some reason the business dissolves or when you want, when you want to go sell it, all those things have to be decided up front so that people can remain friends. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and you agree from day one. So there's no later on when the the stuff hits the fan, which there's a good chance it will, you can't go your separate ways and feel like you're being like you, you agreed to this from the beginning. That's, the, that's why it's so important to, to, to get things written down, to, to no get doubt. alignment from the very beginning. Um, so as you guys started to scale, so what was it like um, when, when Joe became a partner? Uh, this is something I think probably happens a lot. So when we go into, we open a restaurant, we have, we hired a chef uh, to be up, you know, to help us to partner with us in doing this. Uh, how do you guys come across? How do you have that conversation of you deserve equity? I should be giving you equity. Did you ask for it? Did you offer it? What's that like that dance? Like there was an original partner. Um, Maxis has a sister restaurant in uh, Ithaca, New York. And the long and the short of it, um, the original partner with Dan, um, kind of decided to he didn't want to be part of Milwaukee anymore and that's I took over that part that portion of the partnership the opportunity to to become partner with Dan was kind of as a result of someone else that was kind of disgruntled or just didn't want to be part of the partnership anymore so um that's kind of how you know but I ever ever since I every job I've had I've always taken the sense of like I'm I look at it from like an ownership perspective. I mean, back to I think it's just kind of whatever um, you know work ethics instilled in me. I just always look at things that um, kind of take ownership on. I kind of go a little bit above, you know. Um, and uh, 
I don't complain. Yeah. <laughs> I try not to complain. I mean, I would, as far as day-to-day operations go, nothing changed the day that Joe became an owner. It was, he was already doing what he, he was running it like his own place from yeah. the minute he walked in the door and, and nothing ever changed in that respect. So we have five more minutes left, left with Joe before he has to move on to the next uh, commitment he has in the day. But I'm curious from this, what is your advice on partnerships and, and working in partnerships? Because in my experience interviewing people, I, I'm, I lean on the, the direction of you can't do it alone. You need partners. And to, in, in a market that's getting more and more competitive, I don't know if there's fewer people that want to work in the industry or, or if there's just more restaurants than ever before. And there's the hiring pool is the same size, but there there's just more people pulling from the same pool, right? Yeah. I think the best way to get the best talent is to offer people skin in the game or to give them like to give them equity in the businesses. If you really want to to have somebody who's long term equity in the, in the business, right? What are your thoughts on partnership? I'm just curious. That's my opinion. But do you, do you agree or disagree? Where, where do you guys fall there? Well, I think, you know, there's so many different ways to become a partner. Yeah. Um, I think some of the, they're all different. It, you can't, you can say like, oh, we were friends and we decided to open a restaurant together. You hear about those failing all the time yeah. or you hear about those being very successful. So yeah. um, I think it's just, I think it comes down to just having similar values when it comes to the business um you know we're not guys that drive expensive cars we don't you know wear expensive clothes we we love what we do in the industry we, we try to make this a lifestyle for ourselves versus you know it being like work versus non-work time i mean when we travel it's for restaurant life it's for the culture it's for the food um you know when i'm looking at a place to vacation that's I go. I go to a place. One of the first things I look at is what restaurants are in the in that area, and find out you know what am I going to experience that way. So I feel like having that lifestyle, and I think we both have similar views on on just the way we go about our day. Um, you know, not letting too much emotion get in between. Um, you know, if you have that, um, you know, you're fighting and stuff. Can you come and resolve um, that that part of you know? whatever differences you have can you live with the differences you have and i think we've done well at that we don't see eye to eye on everything and sometimes it blows up after a long period you know sometimes you're two ships in the night and especially when you have four restaurants and a bakery and a catering operation to see each other um and communicate well is is a is a is a, a part that uh we lack once in a while but it comes back to communication, you know, too, is like just being able to come back. And if there is a di- difference in what we, we view is like, can we talk about it? Can we work through it? Um, and can we live with whatever the decision that we're going to go with, you know? Has your communication evolved or improved over time? Do you do you believe? It, it evolves. It, 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 it still remains somewhat cyclical. Sometimes we have to go, we, we drift apart, and then we both realize that we're not talking enough, and we come back together. So take us through how to do that. When, when you realize there needs to be a need for communication, how do you guys approach each other and say, we need to talk? Um, it's come from both, but I think the best example is probably COVID 2020, 2021. I think with all the stresses that were going on at the time from just the social unrest and just the COVID situation itself, there were times where we were kind of more thinking of ourselves more so than the business itself and, and how, you know, our, our employees and stuff. And we kind of neglected our relationship. And there was a couple of points where we completely had bigger meltdowns than we ever had before, you know? <laughs> um, 
I think that uh, those kind of you know moments um, they're far and few between, but they happened. I mean, the first night we opened Maxi's for one of the opening parties, um, I think this scenario was I, I Dan was kind of like in the expo window a little bit. I came around. I was I was intending on expoing. I kind of corrected him on something. And he didn't like it, so he had to take a walk around the block. <laughs> and it was good that he did it. I mean, he came back and told me why he got so upset, and we just kind of worked it out. But do you remember why he got upset? It was not exactly, but I mean, basically, it was I, I was running the show, and he stepped in. Uh, you know, and it was it, it was inevitably a very public thing because we were on the expo line. Yeah. Um, but you know, I our working relationship has again we do approach things differently we have, we live uh we have very similar grounded values if you look at our like our family upbringing and thing we're very similar in that respect but we and we share some similar passions beyond the restaurant business but we also we have different lives we don't necessarily socialize that much outside of work um and I think what's important when you're talking about a part business partnership is you really have to look at it like a marriage. Mm. This is not once you're, you know, to in sickness and in health, man, we got to be here for each other. And, you know, for us, the challenges has been that we have we have grown at a fairly frenetic pace. We were growing, growing, growing. And then we were dealing with covid. And now we're trying to come back from it. We're And, and my mind is always on what's what's six months from now and Joe, and this is kind of how we compliment each other. Joe is like, what, what are we, what's happening right now to make it great. Mm-hmm. And, uh, I can neglect that sometimes. And Joe makes sure that, that we are functioning as we should in the moment. And then I worry more about the growth and how to, how to get the next to the next place. But I think you talk about the idea of it's like a marriage, you know, um, I think the things that keep a marriage, you know, Trust, communication, acceptance, you know, those are the things that we kind of, with between us, you know, may take some time to accept each other's point of view, but we seem to always work it out. And then once we have accepted it, can we live with it? You know, you can't sit there and be jealous. You can't sit there and, you know, go back on, you know, and I think the trust issue is huge. And I think we trust each other, um, you know, financially, um, time, you know, with our, our time, our lives, that kind of thing. Yeah, there's a book out there called The Speed of Trust, written by the son of Stephen R. Covey. Uh, I can't remember what, what a brief... It's Stephen Covey, but he uses a different middle initial. Huh. Uh, and it's it's a great book, but The, the Speed of Trust. Uh, things move. It's like lubrication. When you trust people, things just go so much better. When you don't have to, you know... if. If you if you have trust, you don't have to lean on system and process so much. Mm-hmm. System and process is important, but trust just makes things go so much faster. Uh, and I think communication is something that is really important and it's something that we don't talk enough about in the industry. Um, and something I'm trying to be better about is communicating intent and where I'm at. Are there things you do? Are there, there are meetings that you have? Are there, are, have you baked in the importance of communication to your business? And if so, what does that look like so we can replicate it? Well, uh, you know, we complicated things a couple of years ago by adding uh, more partners. Oh, yeah. It was Jason and Amy Kirstein who have, uh, Amy's been with us since we opened Blues in 2010. Jason came on in 2013. They've been incredibly important members of, of our company from the beginning, but they became uh, partners in Blues Egg and Buttermint. Um, a couple of years ago, they're not partners in the others, but they're very involved in the running of the others. And so now it's not just the two of us. We also have 
two more partners who happen to be a married couple. So let's really complicate things. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Although they manage that better than anyone I've yeah. ever seen. Um, they do. Yeah. Um, but uh, again, it, it it's important, regardless of percentage of ownership or you know length of time. You know, both Joe and I have been around longer than they have. They bought an interest in the business, and so they have a say in how things are done. And again, we wrote the business agreements to make sure that uh, it's clear. You know, there there are certain things that can can be superseded, but ninety percent of the function of the business we have to agree. And yeah. So we meet every Tuesday morning is our time. We meet right where we're sitting now, actually, and um, you know. Sometimes our talks are very focused uh, on business and what's going on, and sometimes we're catching up because, uh, uh, again, Jason and Amy worked with Joe back in the 90s uh, at Eddie Martini's. Martini's, That's where they came from as well. So, um, God, I feel bad that we're giving Joe DeRosa so much credit. (laughs) But, you know, we these are, again, these are people that I – I, I love and I trust. And I mean, all Joe, Jason, and Amy are incredibly important people in my life. I don't necessarily, Jason and Amy have a, have kids that are the same age as mine. And so I see them a little more socially, but we don't, we don't try to get together outside of work because we see each other plenty. Cause you need to get away from each yeah, other. Outside yeah. Of work. We all need to, our own time. Well, I think yeah. it's spending. Yeah. Cause you, you know, I mean, just having, you know, wife, significant other, family members, you know, to we've occasionally gone to like a graduation party or that kind of thing, kind of a yeah. family event, you know, birthday party. But yeah, to go out and have dinner on a Friday night, like, you know, hey, I just saw you after work. Let's go get some drinks. Yeah. You know, it's yeah. Um, we did a lot more R&D tripping um, yeah. earlier. In, um, and so we did a lot of that early on. I we, think it's one of the cool things about sharing passion, too, is because you can take a vacation and have it be a focused vacation on business even though it's vacation if you're going on a trip but you can when you share that passion you can you live it you know like mm-hmm. it, it, you get to see that out am i my no, putting words right. into your mouth no was it i'm not, I'm not putting <laughs> words into your mouth am i no okay. not at all no um yeah so i mean i think that's one we've had some of our our best times just kind of going on some of these road trips and we, we've taken our chefs on road trips and at that time you really get to know each other in a, a much closer way too i mean we you're sleeping in the same house, maybe an Airbnb here, you know, morning, noon and night, kind of see what people's daily lifestyles like and stuff. So I think we've got to know each other a little more intimately that way. But, um, yeah. And at the same time you're sharing that passion with each other and it really becomes kind of a think tank at times, you know, where you're just sitting there and talk, talk, talk like geeks about yeah. food, the restaurant culture, the, the, the city's culture, all that kind of stuff. Beautiful. So I do realize you have to get going soon, but I yep. do want to ask you one more question before you depart and something I ask all my guests. Uh, so the, the mission statement of restaurant unstoppable is to inspire, empower and transform the industry. I believe if we can, if we can inspire and, and empower people, we will transform the industry. So how have you personally transformed is the first question. Uh, and then the second question is what do you think we need? How, how do we need to transform the industry is the second question. So what's that first question? How have you personally transformed? Who's, who is Joe today versus the Joe he was getting started in the industry? Um, well, I think when I started, I was building a family, yeah. And you know, my idea that I had to support them, and so to do the best job I could. Um, I think my emphasis on career has changed a bit in the sense of um, I'm not so like hyper focused on like trends and stuff right now, or I'm not hy- so hyper focused on on uh, uh, just finding the next culinary technique. 
I'm more hyper focused on seeing the team and the people we have grow because you know they're 10, 20, 30 years younger than me, and I, I've transformed into that guy that was looking up, and now I'm kind of the guy that's looking down at the people that work with us, and so I don't look down at people, but you know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Of course. Um, yeah. So, and so what about the industry? Uh, look, look, reflecting on what the industry is today, um, do you think that there is room for transformation? Do you think we could be doing certain things better? Is there any part of the industry that you think is broken that could be fixed? I think the industry is so muddled right now. I mean, everything from ghost kitchens to food trucks to restaurants to resorts, and then you have just um, you know people convenience work, stores, pe- pe- convenience stores, stores selling sushi. Yeah, you know, exactly. So, I mean, it's becoming more of like an eating experience more so than a dining experience. Mm. I think that's one thing we talked about coming out of COVID was like we've all had these eating experiences the past two years. So we we re- reopened one of our restaurants to a more fine dining place, Butterman, it's called. Um, and I think it was just the focus on like getting back into a dining experience with service and hospitality. Because um, you can go anywhere and get, have an eating experience. I mean, heck, if you're a wing aficionado, I mean, how many more places can you find wings from grocery stores to gas stations to the little corner bar? But when you get in a fine dining, I think I think the idea of dressing up a little bit, you know, kind of slowing down a little bit, enjoying the meal, um, and just kind of uh, appreciating what you're eating and the time you're having, the time you have with either if you're out with your significant other or you're out with friends and stuff, just kind of slowing down and enjoying it. Because we're, I mean, the, st- the statistics of how many people are eating out compared to the, where we were five years ago or ten years ago just keeps going up and up and up, and it's just that quick grab at a store, quick grab at a f- drive-through fast food, to uh, you know, home meal replacement and cooking at home with yeah. a, a box of food that you get in the mail. You know, so yeah, of course, there's a lot of competition out there. Plus, people are better cooks now at home. I mean, I think they understand the, the culture better, and. You know, our our job in this industry is to cook better than them and and give a better experience than they might have at home. And so to draw them out of their house, I mean, it's kind of the same thing as the entertainment industry is battling just with the idea of home, you know, home theater and stuff. So it's something that we have to constantly battle. Beautiful. Joe, thank you so much for taking the time to join us. Um, you're welcome to stick around as long as you want. But I'm, I'm going to pivot the conversation to Dan now to get his backstory yeah. before he has I'll let him go. He's, he's yeah. got a great radio voice. So. Yeah. <laughs> I was actually, you kind of remind me of George Clooney. How many times have you gotten that? The voice he's too. Enough of it. Yeah. I, I, I get a little bit of that. I look, I look like George Clooney when he's gained weight for a role. <laughs> awesome. All right. Again, well, Eric, Joe, nice to meet so you. Pleasure, yeah. man. Yeah. Uh, Best of uh, luck to you and. I appreciate that. All right. Whatever you're doing next, I hope it's uh, good yeah. as far as whatever your next commitment is. Yeah, yeah. Right. <laughs> totally good. Uh, recently on the show, you've been hearing it come up often. Restaurant Systems Pro. If you've become interested, I highly recommend you sign up for the Restaurant System Pro 60-Day Pilot Program. This is something that's never been done before. This 60-day event is at no cost to you, but it's not for everyone. Fred Langley, CEO of Restaurant Systems Pro, will be leading a group of restaurant tours through the Restaurant Systems Pro software and setting up the system for your restaurant. Fred will be leading the training, supporting you, and holding you accountable. Typically, this costs $10,000 a month to have Fred in your restaurant, but during this no-cost-to-you 60-day training, he will be teaching you every process he does during the group coaching sessions, and nothing will be held back. During the 60 days, Fred will walk you through the Restaurant Systems Pro process and help you crush the following goals recipe costing cards, guidance in your books for accounting, cash control, sales forecasting, 
with accuracy, checklist, budgeting for the entire year, scheduling for profit, more butts in seats, and that's not it. Often, the team at Restaurant Systems Pro helps restaurateurs out pro bono because their hearts go out to these folks. I mean, it's hard out there, but because of that, a lot of the time these restaurateurs don't follow through because they have no skin in the game. For that reason, there is an application process. Only those serious about making change in their operation will be accepted into this program. Are you interested? Then go to restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. That's RSP for Restaurant Systems Pro. Restaurantunstoppable.com slash RSP. Another fabulous day in the hospitality industry. See you, Joe. So for the listeners, a little context. We did schedule Joe and Dan separately where I was going to try to do two interviews today. As life can be in the restaurant industry, things get crazy. I'm just happy that Joe was able to join Dan and I during our block time. I was able to get both stories, and I I appreciate your flexibility in accommodating me. I really do. Sure. So let's pivot to your side of the story. Um, So basically... Pick up where kind of Dan picked up in his journey. Like, when did you know? You went to school at Cornell, so you must have known pretty early on that this was going to be your path. Yeah, I I uh, I had worked at a country club in high school. I didn't necessarily know, and no one in my family had ever worked in hospitality. So I didn't necessarily know that this was my calling. I got I was a pretty good high school football player, and I got recruited uh, to go to Cornell. Yeah. And unfortunately, injury meant I pretty much just played freshman ball, but uh, I... Got, I, you know, I was, I was looking at Cornell as a place to go to school. They happened to have a the best hotel yeah. restaurant management program in the country. And I got on campus and I just got really excited about it because to me, uh, hospitality is inherently entrepreneurial and it, it does speak to part of my personality, which is I like throwing the party that everybody yes. talks about on Monday. So, yes. uh, you know, I was that kid. I can relate to that. <laughs> and uh, it just was a, was a good fit. I re- so I got to Cornell. I was working at a, a restaurant called L'Auberge de Cochon Rouge, a country inn of the Red Pig. And uh, sounds better in French. Uh, <laughs> which was a, really a very good restaurant. Um, learned a lot about food and wine there and also learned how to not run a restaurant. Uh, but assumed that I would have a career in hotels uh, because so many of the, you know, the, the directive of Cornell really was more hotel focused. I mean, in their defense at that time and to this day, probably there's a lot more security in hotels. Sure. And I, yeah, I graduated in 1990. The restaurant business was not anything like it is today. Um, I remember in 1989 going down to New York City for a, a trip with school, and we got the opportunity to meet Danny Meyer. And uh, he was really not that well known at that time. He just happened to be a friend of the professor. What and year is this? Not to date. 89. 89. And uh, it, uh, I was really impressed by him. I thought, this is a guy who is a businessman, but he's so much more than a businessman. He's somebody who builds community around his business and people not only know him, but they get to know each other because of him. Uh, and let's, he just, let's get into that a little okay. bit more. What do you mean by he builds community around? His well, business? I mean, he's spoken of this in some, in his uh, book, uh, setting the table and in others that, and I've tried to emulate the same in my career that if I'm working a room and I've got people over here who I know, I know this person is a professor at Marquette and uh, I know that this person over here is a 
um, uh, runs a nonprofit in town, and they're they're things kind of like. I try to physically bring them together in my space. I'm introducing people at my party, right? You know, yeah. you're, it's all about being a host. It's all about, you know, we, we call this company Black Shoe Hospitality, not Black Shoe Restaurants. We call it Black Shoe because of the, when you get a job in the restaurant business, the first thing they tell you to go get is a pair of non-stick or non-slip black work shoes, yeah. right? Yeah. So this is not patent leather fancy black shoe. This is the work shoe. And so that part is kind of speaks to Joe and I's approach, uh, all of our people's approach to you got to earn it, you got to work hard. But the inclusion of hospitality was very specific in that we feel our job, and I am probably most rewarded by the hospitality that we provide, making people feel like they are part of the club when they dine with us. They're not just a, a customer, they're a guest of ours, they're recognized. We, uh, and you know, it's harder now because we have four restaurants going and catering business and lots of things that are, you know, I can't be everywhere at once, nor can Joe. But, uh, when we're in the restaurants, we work really hard to connect and we empower our managers to make people make friends, you know, don't just there. These are not, this is not a transactional thing. Yeah. I think what Danny calls it is ABC. I think, yeah. or always be connecting the dots. Yeah, is what he right. Said. Yeah, and and it and it, it sounds simple, but it really is because you can on a on an ever average day in a restaurant business, you're running around taking care of all these different things. You got to be operating a little higher level to say, okay, you know, food's good, rooms running, pacing, everything's all right. But what can I do right now to make the some of the guests in the room or as many as possible feel special yeah. and feel like they. You know, the old cheers, everybody wants to go where somebody knows their name, yeah. you know. But it gets into the psychographics or the, and just like the psychology of restaurants. People go to restaurants because, well, one, they want to be associated with, a. I think they like to be associated with certain restaurants if it's mm-hmm. a, if it's known for something, right? What does, this, what does eating at this restaurant say about me? But also they're looking for a companionship. They're looking, whether that's the bartender or server they like. But if you can find a way to remove your, your the you, you and your your team members uh, being dependent or the guests being dependent on you and your team members, and you can create community between the guests. That's special. Absolutely. That's really special. And I think it's the best bartenders that understand this. Mm-hmm. They understand. I don't need to entertain all the guests. I need to get the guests to entertain each other yep. and, and bring working. exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the, again, I go back to the cocktail party. I want to throw a great cocktail party where everybody, I, I, I'm not the focus. I'm just the, the person bringing everybody together yeah. and making sure the music's just right, the food's just yeah. right, the hey, drink's Jenny, just right, so that people can <laughs> yeah. have these opportunities. Whether you know, in some cases, the, if it's a couple or something, and they're wanting to be together, fine, let them enjoy that, give them everything they need, so they're comfortable. But this idea of we're building community right here in the room, yeah. and so you graduate from Cornell in 1990. I yes. saw that you were working in hotels pred- originally, predominantly. Yes. You did own a restaurant. In 2000 I, in Colorado, correct? Uh, so I, uh, yes, I went to Texas right away after school, uh, worked for Harvey Hotel Company, which there were a bunch of Cornellians. In fact, Cornellians started the business. Liked them, but realized I really just wanted to be in the restaurant business. Uh, so I went out to Colorado the first time to uh, and got a job cooking. What felt I had not, at that point, had never worked in the back of house. I thought maybe I wanted to be a chef proprietor. I wanted to see it was there. I ended up 
working there and doing some stages over in Europe. And I did a short program at the CIA in, in Hyde Park, uh, all of which were great to get me going. I worked, uh, for, so I went Texas, Colorado, uh, left Colorado for Europe, came back, went to the CIA for a bit, then out to Seattle and worked under a chef named David Keller out in Snoqualmie, Washington. What were we doing in the CIA? Just a, I did like a 12-week culinary program. And Got I it. did it just because I felt that it would speed up my learning curve inside of a good restaurant. So I went there for 12 weeks and then one of the chefs I met there connected me with David Keller, who was uh, uh, running this uh, Snoqualmie Lodge at the time uh, in, or no, it was called the Salish Lodge in Snoqualmie, Washington. So the old Twin Peaks, the beginning of the show, Twin Peaks, there's a hotel with waterfalls coming down. It's that hotel, it's 30 miles outside Seattle. And I went out and I worked for David uh, and saw undeniably the best example of what a master chef does. I mean, he was making food, walk and talk out there. Um, and he, again, was a solid guy and an interesting professional. Um, then, so then I, but it was during that time that I realized that I was not going to be a chef proprietor. I was going to be a proprietor who had spent time in the kitchen. What was the reason for that? What, what was it that wasn't doing it for you in the kitchen? I wasn't that good. Yeah. You know, I mean, I was, I was competent. I was solid. I could hang, but I wasn't creating food when I was given that charge. When, when the chefs, the David or his Sue, another smart guy, you know, would challenge me to come up with specials. I had. I was good. I had always had an interest in beverage and ultimately did a lot of work with wine and spirits. I had great ideas about what to complement the dish with for wine, but I, as far as the creation of ingredients, it just, it was pretty clear to me that I had accomplished what I had wanted to do, which was to understand the process in the kitchen, the importance of quality. I had my last job in a hotel. I had had a real son of a bitch as a executive chef. And he, I mean, he was just a horrible, horrible person. And, <laughs> Uh, it occurred to me in working with him that while I knew what he was doing was wrong, I didn't know enough to tell him to take a walk. What, you, what was he doing that was wrong? How he treated people? How he or? treated people. Okay. I mean, he, culinarily, he was fine, um, but he just was not a nice person. Mm-hmm. And I didn't know enough. I couldn't kick him. I couldn't fire him. He was actually my superior, so I suppose that wouldn't work. But I couldn't have fired him in that circumstance because I needed somebody to make the food, right? Yeah. So. I felt I needed to go and at least get, and we're talking about a period of three years I was in White, so I was cooking a fair bit and some of it in Europe and in the United States and some good restaurants. And uh, during that time, I became competent enough to really understand how food production works, food safety, all of those things. But during that time, I also realized that I was not that much of a creative star. So it was then that I pivoted and moved to Charlotte, North Carolina, worked for a company down there that was developing restaurant concepts and trying to turn them into chains. I had no real interest in being in the chain restaurant business. In fact, one of the concepts we got up and running was purchased by a, a the uh, same people that own Pizza Hut. I forget. Oh, I forget too. Is it Yes Brands? Uh, no. No. But the I I went from being in charge of a restaurant one day to the next week sitting on a conference call with people in Wichita telling me how I was going to run my restaurant. And I knew then that the chain restaurant business was not for me. Um, 
But I learned a ton from those guys about how to make money in the restaurant. What wasn't it about the chain industry that didn't sit right with you? Well, in order – and we've been down this road. We talked about taking Blue's Egg and turning it multiple concepts. Inherently, if you want to replicate a restaurant, you have to dumb it down to the point where you are – you can – anybody can make this dish and anybody can set this dining room up. This is our standard. Yeah. Yeah. And in that inherently in that process, it loses its specialness, right? Yeah. So we we would, I mean, there's no doubt we would have made a lot more money by now if we had just opened more blues egg brunch concepts. Because when we opened in 2010, nobody was doing brunch. Mm. A lot of people are. Yeah, oh, yeah. It's everybody's doing it now. But I can't remember. I think um, uh, there's a some something Smith, uh, Andrew Smith. I, I think I can't remember who he's associated with. The name of his venture capital. I don't know. He just brought I think Sunday brunch for a stupid amount. I want to say like millions and millions and millions of yeah. dollars. It's only yeah. been around for like less than a year. The concept was around, but it was such a great brand. Uh, and brunch is so hot right now. It has legs. So it does indeed. You kicking yourself yeah. a little bit, <laughs> or is it you know, not right I, for you? If I counted the number of ways in which I could have made more money in my life, I'd get really bummed out. But uh, <laughs> I. I have kept doubling down on, I like to build something from this ground up. I'm very interested in, in how to create a restaurant concept and bringing in the people who are going to make it happen. I mean, again, I reflect on Jason and Amy, our, our partners. They um, came in, both had their marching orders, and little by little, they took on more and more and more. And again, before they ever became partners, they were partners in what was happening. And nothing at this point in my career, I am much more interested in doing, like Joe was talking about, he's not as interested in food trends. He's talking about most interested in developing his people. That's where I'm at too. I'm much more interested in the success of the people that work with us and watching them grow and get better. Yes. And, you know, to a certain extent, it's self-serving because if, if, if they're not growing and getting better, then I'm, you know, still going to, I, there's no chance for me to grow and move yes. on to other things. You need too. people for growth. No and doubt. I think that was probably one of my biggest, like, earth shattering realizations, aha moments when I was trying to figure out what do, like, what do the Rich Melmans of the world, the Cameron Mitchells of the mm-hmm. world, the, the Danny Myers of the world do? To scale such amazing businesses, they don't. They're they're looking out for other people. They're they're creating right. opportunities for other people. They're growing people. They they're farming amazing people and creating opportunities. And that's how they create growth. And no they, doubt. And, and they make partners in their restaurants. And they say, hey, like you're going to go off and open your own restaurant someday. Mm-hmm. I know that. I can right. see that it's going to happen. Want to do it together? Right. Right. Like let's. And then you, you've given them your culture. You've given them your systems. You know, it's just, it's almost like a no brainer. And and it's about growing other people. Absolutely. I mean, it's, it's, uh, that would, and so, you know, I mentioned earlier that when I moved to Milwaukee, I wanted to open a restaurant group that was specifically from the experience I had had just prior. So I, I moved around, I was telling you before, I kind of moved around a bunch, went back to Colorado, very, I'm an avid skier and outdoors person. And I moved back to Vail, Colorado and ran a restaurant there called Terra Bistro, uh, which was a neat, uh, not very forward-thinking kind of spa cuisine concept. But I met a guy named Kevin Clare who owned a restaurant called Sweet Basil, which has been the most popular restaurant in Vail forever. Um, and Kevin's a really smart guy and a good guy. I enjoyed 
him socially before we came to work. He approached me. He had just previously, a year earlier, had opened a restaurant called Zeno down in Edwards, Colorado, which is about 20 miles down. It's more of a where a lot of the locals live. Um, but uh, he had opened this restaurant, and it was successful, but he just didn't have the time to deal with all of it. And so he brought me in as a junior partner. Um, unfortunately, it, it, we worked well together. Uh, we reached a point. He was looking to make a move and go out to California. So he wanted to sell out. I wanted to, I wanted to do something new. Um, and unfortunately, the way that business operating agreement was written, when we sold it, he did very well. I did not. Uh. I did fine, but I didn't do. I didn't get what I should have. And so that's where I learned the lesson about it's all got to be written down. Mm-hmm. So, um, but during that time of running Zeno, which was from ninety eight to two thousand three, um, I was there every day. Every person who was a regular at that restaurant, I knew them by name. I knew what they did. Uh, I did, you know, I wasn't necessarily the chef, but I would, there were days I was prepping food or helping with the bakery. Um, I was involved in every aspect of that business and on the floor all the time, which in resort towns like Vail is, you actually get, the job gets harder in the off season because you don't, don't have the level of revenue to employ as many people as you need. So as an owner operator, you're, you know, washing dishes and greeting at the same time. So when I left there, we sold that and it almost exactly at the time that we were selling that restaurant, uh, we found my first wife and I found out that we were expecting our daughter and my first wife was from Wisconsin. She wanted to move here to be closer to family. I wanted to go somewhere where I could own the real estate and have control of that, which truly if, if somebody wants to make a buck in this business, own the real estate. Um, and, uh, it was also, a, we had been here, of course, visiting Wisconsin because she was from here. And I liked it. I, re, you know, I grew up in Nebraska. I was very comfortable having uh, the, the Midwestern comfort. I, I loved the mountains, but this actually was probably a better fit as far as the people. It was a place where I felt, felt comfortable yeah. raising our daughter. You, you mentioned the importance of owning the real estate. I mean, there's pretty obvious things with, with that statement, like you know, having an appreciating asset over time. Mm-hmm. What are the less obvious reasons so the uh obviously if you buy the real estate whether it's an existing restaurant or you build it out you are making a way bigger commitment financially and that's why i needed so many partners on that original deal they they didn't actually have ownership in the business they had ownership in the building which made it better for them because it was a hard asset they were investing in it also, it, it also meant that we, yeah, they had or a tenant, good, good tenant yeah. and it, it meant that they had no say in the restaurant. So, yeah. um, that was, you were asking about how we arranged that. That was let them invest in the building, but not in the business. The part that was hard was in order for, you know, most people who make a business investment in something like this, they want it, they want it long-term peace. And I didn't want that. So I gave them very significant returns quickly we gave them very significant returns quickly and then bought them out. So again, we had the control, but I mean, we, you know, we invested a little over $2 million to open maxis all in building and business. And just last year we paid off the last of the mortgage. Congratulations. So 15 years later, uh, it was 15 years ago in May and you know, 
we on so on Story Hill, which is our third restaurant. The restaurant we're sitting in now, Blues, uh, is a lease, but we negotiated a good long term lease with the landlord at a reasonable rate. And you know, this restaurant has actually produced. If you look at the return on investment, this re- business has returned the most. We we all in. We spent about four hundred thousand dollars to open this restaurant, wow. and it has produced handsomely uh, over the over the years. So, so I'm curious. You're talking about the uh, business agreement between your partners with Maxis, how they owned the real estate, and how you were going to pay them back over time, uh, and you. you you didn't really get into the details of how to structure that for people who are looking to bring on investors who are their ears perked up with like, maybe I could do something like that. How did you structure that in a way that is appealing to the investor that you can pay them back? They can get returns quickly. The way you said it was intriguing. So I want some details. It's a little complicated to explain in this context, but basically the, the way I would, if I were to, you know, sit down with somebody and explain it to him, I'd say, Create in your in your operating agreement, make it clear that they are not entitled to any return beyond, you know, what the business can afford. But as the operating partner, I have the ability to send more money to in the division of the business in the real estate is where it gets a little tricky. Basically, we paid more. We we bar the the we raised the capital with the real estate. Bought the building, renovated the building, had about four hundred thousand left over, and loaned that money to uh, the uh, business to the no to the restaurant to the restaurant to open the rest of it. So the restaurant opened with a promissory note back to the real estate entity. That gave me the ability to funnel money faster than just paying rent. There's a set rent amount we paid every month, but as we generated profits, I was able to send that money back. I also had the control. I didn't take any returns. Joe didn't get any returns on the real estate entity until we got everybody bought out. So we basically, they made like 25% return annually for three years. And then I bought them out at their original investment amount. So got it. you got you to throw them. If, for somebody to do that and not benefit from a long-term deal, they got to make great returns up front. Got it also it. happened in 2007 when the sky was falling financially <laughs> and uh, people were like, yeah, anything's better than the market right now. <laughs> so. so talk about your evolution over time. Uh, we talked about we talked briefly about Joe and what appealed. Uh, this, was this Joe's phone or mine? Sorry, I thought Joe left his phone here. Is this mine? Um, what, what what was it about Joe that appealed to when you're growing your team? You knew you knew you wanted to be focusing on the front of house, on the business, uh, on business mm-hmm. growth, projecting into the future six months out. You need somebody to be in, the, like an op, almost like an operating partner who's the, the, the talent, who who's the creative. Mm-hmm. What was it about Joe that really stuck, stood out to you? So Joe mentioned that he had a family young. Yeah. Joe had has five kids wow. and and had them I think all of them before he was 25, maybe That's before wild. 27 or I'm something. Such a I mean, yeah, no, he got busy. <laughs> and so he wasn't able to, you know, he had to support a family and he was working and uh wasn't able to travel like for me, I got to knock around and go to Europe and move to Seattle on a whim and all those things. Uh he he was working and so the way he grew his knowledge was digging into not just cookbooks, but 
you know, like when we were talking about Southern cooking, he started reading books on the history of the South and understanding, you know, all the, the elements of it. And, and we did travel there. And when we did, it wasn't just to eat at a restaurant. It was to really get a, in depth of the flavor of the business. But Joe is, so, so I, I was always very impressed by his work ethic and his willingness to get out, you know, a lot of chefs, they, they, they're one trick pony or they learn a few things and that's kind of their go-to. Joe is always pushing himself to learn the next thing. And it was where it really, so, you know, he had done, he had done early fine dining. His first job as an exec chef was with Eddie Martini's estate concept. Then he went to the country club where he was very kind in speaking of the people that he worked for down there, but they beat the crap out of country clubs are the worst. Uh, I wouldn't, would never <laughs> ever in my last day take a job working in a country club, but uh, especially a very high end. What do you think that is? Is it just a lack of appreciation, a, a, a sense of entitlement? A club member is different than a restaurant guest. A restaurant guest has paying to be at the table there for the moment. A club member that feels you, like they have a say. Yeah, they 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 get to call the shots. <laughs> I worked at a country club, and it's yeah. weird. There's pros and cons to it. Sometimes it's the culture of the club. If you yes. if you have a club that is filled with like anthrop or uh, what's philanthropists, and the, yeah. the, there's a good values to the club, and it's built on values, mm-hmm. it can be amazing. And you can have the cool thing about it is you you have the same guest every day. So yes, it's less of a transaction. You really develop a relationship with the guest. Some clubs are just very. It's about, I don't know, almost like they're, they're at that club to, to prove a point yeah. almost. Yes. You know? And I don't know yeah. anything about this club, but I've heard stories. Yeah. Um, no, it's, I mean, they're, name any country club, but there's a certain amount of social pecking order that goes yeah. on. And, uh, you know, the wealthier the people, the bigger it's the It's a social order. club is yeah. what it is. And there's yeah. different degrees of sh- social clubs out there, yeah. right? And they right. tend to, uh, birds of the, fe- of the feather tend to flock together. So, Indeed. Uh, so, but, you know, Again, uh, I mean, Joe is somebody that I love the guy. I care deeply about Joe Minch. But again, we don't necessarily see eye to eye on any number of things. And we don't really work that hard at spending time outside because we see each other a lot. Or we're we're always working together. But again, the, the, the hardest probably if you want to get back to that whole partnership thing, I alluded to it before of. I, I feel that it's part of my job to worry about where we're going. What's, what's the next thing in regard to not necessarily opening the next concept, but what's, if we're, where are we putting our energies? Improving the restaurant or, you know, right now we're in the middle of a new POS install. There's a lot of reasons, you know, a POS system and as a POS system, it's not that big a deal, but there's a lot of things that we're trying to change about financially, the way we run the business by installing this system. And, I've been planning that for, you know, long time now. Yeah. Well, you know, I'm looking at the clock right now. We have about uh, only like ten minutes left together because oh, you said wow. you had a hard. Yeah. T- it goes I, by really I have fast. A, yeah, I need to speak with a catering client at five o'clock. Uh, okay. So I want to try to you know respect your time. Understood. Um, I think that's a, a. My ears is perked up when you said we're trying to evolve our uh, our technology to evolve our financial structure? Well, I don't know exactly what you said, So, what's the thought process? How, so how are you evolving? I, I think in those questions that you sent, one of them was, you know, what was the greatest challenge that you faced in your career? We are in it right now. What is that? Staffing. Yeah. And, and COVID changed the model in ways that will, 
the, the business model of you open the doors, guests come in, sit down, have a meal, go home. That's great. And that is still our core business. And it's important for me, as I think about the next thing to remember, our core business is, hasn't really changed that much in that we're all about take, you know, hospitality and taking care yeah. of people, serving them, serving a nice meal, helping create an experience. But what COVID showed us was that you cannot make that your sole business model. You have to have other ways to grow revenue. So obviously everybody in the industry during COVID got into to-go business. We still, you know, pre-COVID, a big week of business, of to-go business would be 3 or 4% of gross for us. I mean, there was one point when it was 100% of our sales. Yeah. But it's still 15 to 20% of gross every single week for New us. New habits at our have formed in the consumer. No doubt. Yeah. But beyond just the traditional to-go, we have gotten into, luckily here in Wisconsin, we can sell to-go cocktails. Uh, we've gotten into party boxes, especially around the Maxi's concept. We're doing these party boxes to go with pulled pork and fried chicken and mashed potatoes and all of that. Um, we are uh, uh, doing, we have a bakery just down the hall here that provides all the baked goods for all of our restaurants, breads, pastries, all of it. We're now growing the bakery as a standalone, not creating a new physical plant but we launched that in 21 right? yeah we, we the bakery's been around since 2015 we'd always made our own desserts from scratch but we centralized it in 2015 oh it was the buttermint so yeah. finer dining buttermint like finer dining and cocktails was a concept we opened last december um and that restaurant and in particular story hill bkc the restaurant we opened in 2014 have included alcohol as retail in the concept too so Everything that's available. I mean, at both restaurants, we have Wine Spectator award-winning wine lists. Everything is available at a retail price. Very few, you know, most restaurants have this traditional three times markup. We don't do that. We mark up about, it's a base price plus a percentage. Um, and then, or excuse me, it's a percentage plus a base price of more base on a retail model. And then um, we, you know, you can come, if you like that, you know, I, I'm really enjoying this Sauvignon Blanc. I've got it right there on the shelf. I can do it. So that, that is every restaurant's got to have something more than just come in, sit down and have dinner. We've, we're trying to grow that. And in order to do that effectively, we needed a POS system that allowed us to do all those things. I can better track what's going on across the four restaurants we also created with Maxi's. We created a we, we pre-COVID. We usually did about ten or twelve weddings a year. This year we're going to do eighty-five. Next year we're going to do one hundred and twenty. Awesome. So you're putting energy into growing the catering. Catering is a yeah. Channels. And again, we need we needed catering when during COVID. It was yeah. it was not a, a gee let's try it out. It's like please I hope this so saves you, us. You know, kind this of this country club background is going to come into uh, <laughs> use here. So, um, so we now are. Um, that was something I was hoping to talk a little bit more with Joe about oh. is diversifying your your you know your Swiss Army knife like yeah. you know getting into different verticals of culinary so you can diversify your business and because yeah. country clubs that's, that's huge catering you're always you're constantly cooking for bulk. We've you know? now attracted some really talented chefs to the company but there is no doubt, you know, each one of our restaurants has an entirely different concept. Each one of our restaurants has uh, very different approaches to the, the menu, how it's developed and things. Each one of our restaurants has five to seven specials every single day. The menu is changing constantly. And that is all a result of Joe 
just creating constantly. He is one of the most creative people I've ever met. And in addition to being this great chef, he's a hell of a baker, too. He's, he's got a really critical eye when it comes to baking, and not many chefs can do that. So what is this POS that you decided to go to? We're, we're going with toast, which has been uh, well, uh, has become taken off quite a bit. The cloud-based system is really nice. We were with a competitor, Upserve, previously, and they just completely failed on the loyalty program. Pre-COVID, we were with Aloha, and we had a very robust loyalty program. So for for the four restaurants, we had uh, 15,000 Best Guest Club members, loyalty members, and they were active. We had four, five, 6,000 people a month actively earning and redeeming points. When we, we originally pivoted from Aloha to Upserve uh, to deal with more online ordering and some of the things on top, cloud-based yeah. computing, and it worked pretty well, but they just completely failed on the loyalty program. They could not do it for us, and we ultimately ended up having to put it on hold, which was not a popular move. Uh, we've been, and we are just literally right now bringing it back last week and this week. We're finally back, and we, had held, we held on to all the points for the guests and anybody who had earned points with us in the past still has them. And we're sending out emails, getting people back into the system again and getting them back using them again. And the goal is, so the bigger business model is, if, somebody, if you're a Best Guest Club member, you're going you're gonna to you're gonna have breakfast here at Blues. You're going to have happy hour at Maxi's. You're going to pick up your retail over at Story Hill when you're having dinner there. You're going to go to Buttermint. Yeah, you're going to buy gift cards with us because we've got four different restaurants. So the idea of this loyalty program, people can earn and redeem in all these different ways across all the brands, across all the brands, and in you know, even buying gift cards or you know, to go food. I don't care. However, you want to spend money with us, you spend 150 dollars, you get 10 dollars back. You also get some other perks, birthday perks, and, and unexpected. And what things. is it about Toast that allows you to do this? Is it because it's all connected in the back end? It's all connected in the back end, and it's just well thought out technology. Um, and it's still it's not quite perfect. We just figured out this morning something needed to be changed. And uh, what was that? Well, the way a server brought up the account in the thing. So I, I don't know if Toast is going to love having us or not because we are, we are asking a well, lot Well, that's what them. the point of this podcast yeah, is, right. too, is to not blow steam. Yeah. If you talk to any one of these POS companies, they're gonna, their job is to sell you yes, on something. Yes. And when there's not enough of us just talk. I mean, people talk. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I think what I'm trying to do with the podcast is to centralize the conversation so you can get word of mouth, unbiased. This is what this is our experience, and this right. is how I got here. But beyond that, it's also helping us connect with the tools and resources at our disposal and getting real transparent, authentic testimonials. So right. I'm loving this conversation. Yeah. Thank you very much. Sure. Uh, I, I hate to, you know, speed up the I conversation. Can, but I can give you five to seven more minutes. Okay. So just like I asked Joe, uh, the mission statement is to inspire, empower, and transform. How have you transformed? Who are you today versus the man you were when you got started in this industry? When I got started, I mean, I moved around a lot because I wanted so much to learn and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I have, especially now at 53, 53, shit, I'm 54. Uh, <laughs> at 54, um, I, in some way, I mean, and, and we don't deal, you know, every day we're probably the worst part about our jobs is we're always needed somewhere else. So I feel like I'm going on to the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. And, I, and I've really grown to kind of, I won't say resent that. I certainly don't resent the people that I work with, but I resent the nature of my job in that I'm always, like, I can never stick around long enough to do it 
to really dig in on something. Core focus. And so I am, I am actively right now trying to change both my personality and the initiatives. We're, we're doing a build out of this catering facility right now that we need because we're up to 100 plus weddings a year. Um, so we're right next door to Maxie's. We're, we've owned a piece of property there and we're building it out now. Um, but once that's done, I really just want to spend the energy on our core values as a business. I want to focus on the people inside the building. Really, where I really want to spend my energy is on our management teams because there's no way I can affect everybody in the company. We're about 200 employees right now. Yeah. Um, I want to focus on the managers and develop them to a point where they can effectively lead. You got to recreate yourself in the vision, the mission, the core values, yeah. and really. So, and that's how I explain creating core values in a culture in general. It's it's who am I? Mm-hmm. Who are we? How does that look on paper? Right. And how do we use that as a filter to recruit and, and to create standards and with and how we do things? Right. Um. How where are you going to learn more about how to do that? Well, what resources are you using? I you know I, probably the the greatest resources have been not really business related. The most inspiration I've garnered in the last year was a book uh, by David Brooks called The Second Mountain. He's a columnist for the New York Times. And he wrote the book out of kind of a personal crisis of I'm in my 50s and don't know. And this idea that we spend the first part of our life. In fact, when I was turning 50, a friend of mine we were out for dinner and four or five of us and we were out celebrating and there was this woman who came by our table she's probably 80 years old I don't know but she walked over and she said gentlemen I can't help but overhearing you're celebrating your 50th birthday like yes of course we were a few (laughs) let the whole restaurant we were a few cocktails (laughs) in at that point so we were very proud of ourselves for turning 50 and uh she said may I make a toast and she said sure and she grabbed one of the guy's wine glasses uh, you know away from him and she held it up and she said the first 50 years are about building legitimacy the next 50 years are about building legacy. And she mm. took the glass, and, she, and this is an 80-year-old woman, and she just popped the whole damn thing back, <laughs> put it down on the table, and she said, think about that, and walked away. <laughs> and we were speechless, not a one of us. because So this idea of, all right, we've grown this business, we're well-loved in town, we've got a lot of people to work for us a long time, but you do start to reach a point of what's the legacy? What's What are we trying to, what's the end game? And, you know, I'm... Uh, very happily married for the second time. Uh, my first marriage was not a particularly happy marriage, partly because I was working all the time. Yeah. And I, what do I want? What my legacy? I want to be known as much as a business person. I want to be known as a good husband and a good father and somebody who was there for their friends. And yeah. you know, I, this idea of you know making how much money do you need to make? I mean. I, officially, we need to make a little more, but you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah. You know, I I have I'm less concerned about the latest and greatest. I'm less concerned about uh, of position and prestige than I am just a a, a day well done of good work. Awesome. You know, feeling like we've done something good here today. I think we can bust a, a three minute speed round if you're down for sure. it. Sure. All right, we're gonna take one more quick break to thank our sponsors, and we'll be right back to bust out a speed round. 
Today's episode is brought to you by Seven Shifts. Seven Shifts is a modern labor management platform designed by restaurateurs for restaurateurs. And effective labor management is more important than ever to ensure profitability and restaurant success, especially with this labor shortage. You need to rely and trust technology more than ever before. And dialing in your labor management is one of the most positive, dramatic impacts you can make on your business's bottom line. And when it comes to labor management, Seven Shifts is one of the most, if not the most, organically recommended labor management platforms on the show. Trusted by over 500,000 restaurant professionals, Seven Shifts gives you the complete toolkit you need to easily manage your team's schedules, timesheets, communication, tasks, tips, and more, all from one place. Best of all, Seven Shifts integrates with the POS and payroll system you're already using like toast to make smart operating decisions and turn labor management into a competitive advantage for your business. Restaurant Unstoppable members get three months absolutely free. Get started at www.7shifts.com slash unstoppable. That's the number seven S H I F T S dot com slash unstoppable to get three months of industry leading labor management for free. It's no secret that restaurants have been hit hard over the past few years, which means restaurant owners and staff have been working harder than ever. Trying to meet the demands of in-person hospitality can be demanding, which is why I recommend Pop Menu Answering. Pop Menu Answering turns every restaurant phone call into an opportunity. It uses artificial intelligence to answer the simple questions that are tying up your phone lines, like, can I make a reservation or where are you located? And over 50% of restaurant guests are happy to have their questions answered by an automated system. With the Pop Menu platform, you can customize answers for your restaurant and you can choose the voice your guests hear and even send follow up links via text message. Pop Menu Answering picks up your phone 24-7, 365 days a year, allowing you and your team to focus on what matters most. Prevent lost customers and impress your guests with Pop Menu Answering. And for a limited time, my listeners can get $100 off your first month plus lock in one unchanging monthly rate at popmenu.com slash unstoppable. Go now to get $100 off for your first month and learn more about Pop Menu's full collection of tools at popmenu.com backslash unstoppable. We're back on the first question I have for you is what is your it factor? A habit, a trait, a characteristic you believe most contributes to your success. Personal success? You, yeah. People understand I care about them. What is your biggest weakness? Monkey mind. <laughs> what is one question you ask or thing you look for when you're interviewing, when you're growing your team? Uh, do they love the industry? What is is your- this what they want? What is the biggest challenge of today? You already kind of got into that. Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's staffing. Yeah. Getting people to love this as a life. Because Joe Luders, oh, sorry, this is a bad speed round, I guess. No, you're fine. To love it as a life. Yeah. And you got into how you're overcoming that challenge, too, so I won't ask you that question. Share one code of conduct or behavior you teach your team, a core value. Uh, th- 
mutual respect front of house to back of house. Yeah. There what, is no, there's no pecking order. We, we really have to, we don't have to love each other, but there is no place for front of house, back of house conflict. Got it. What is one uncommon standard of service? Something that you do to go above and beyond what's expected from the guests? We call them uh, uh, LSEs, little something extra. Uh, it is unexpected things at unexpected times. It is everything from the butter mints that we deliver to the table at the end, or uh, somebody's enjoying their coffee and we bring them a coffee to go when they're leaving. Got it. Unexpected things. One recommended book. You already mentioned one. You can echo that here now if you want. Uh, the Second Mountain by David Brooks has, to me, been a very inspiring book. Uh, Danny Meyer setting the table to me is a classic yep. industry book. Um, what is one piece of te- uh, technology you've recently adopted? We got pretty deep into that with Toast. If you want to echo that here, just having technology that gets you the information. Figure out what do you need. What's the, what do I need to know? Because all of this technology is, you can get more numbers and data than yeah. You Break it down, and it needs to be adaptable such that you what are the things that make me money or cost me money and i need to know about those every day in every a, week and i'm abbreviating this question for the sake of time but essentially what are three pieces of wisdom that you could leave behind for the good of humanity in your legacy if you could only leave three pieces of wisdom behind uh get outside more Show the people that you live with, work with, that you love them, really love them, and that their presence makes your life better. Don't sweat the small stuff. Two. Was there three? Was that That, three? Yeah, I think it was three. So get outside more. Oh, sorry. I missed that one. Just being inside is way overrated. (laughs) Letting people know that you really care about them. And then don't sweat the small stuff. I mean, there's so much small stuff. Dan, thank you so much. It's Joe, my pleasure. If you was here, I'd say thank you to him as well. Uh, he had to get going. You have to get going too. Uh, who do you respect and admire? If I got them as a guest on the show, you'd absolutely be listening to that episode. Locally or just in general? Anywhere. Um, you know what? I'm going to give a shout out to an old... He was never my business partner, but he was partners with Kevin Clare uh, out in Vail. He's now the general manager owner uh, of Sweet Basil in Vail, Colorado. Uh, he's the owner of, he took over for Kevin uh, and is the owner of Sweet Basil in Vail, Colorado. His name's Matt Morgan. They actually have now a neat, very cool restaurant just below that called uh, Mountain Standard. And Matt, Matt does, he totally gets what we were talking about earlier, this idea of connecting the dots. Yeah. He, and, and, you know, in a resort town, it's hard because there's your most, they're incredibly regular guests, but you only see them once a year, mm-hmm. right? And his ability to build those relationships over multiple years has been very impressive to me. And, and and this job, this job, one of the internal things we say here is if you're not having fun doing it, you're doing it wrong. Because mm-hmm. the restaurant business, you know, I'll throw in one last little thing, just because everybody's been asking me lately about what's it like, what's COVID been like, what's the shortage after the restaurant business has always been hard. It is a demanding, it has from the day I entered it, it's late nights and weekends and long hours and crazy situations and all of that stuff. But it's also 
always been fun. It has been a, I have thoroughly enjoyed my career. I have yeah. had a lot of fun doing what I've done. Last couple of years, it has not been fun. <laughs> and well, Matt, Matt is a guy that I was, I've always was impressed. He and I never really worked directly together, but I worked in an associated business. Nobody had more fun taking care of gas than Matt Morgan. So yeah. if you're in Vail, you should look him up. And you are hiring. What's the best way to connect if we want to come work for you? Blackshoehospitality.com. Go to the career tab. And we are looking for positions really in all areas. We are looking for some chefs, uh, not an exec chef, but a couple of sous chefs looking for a pastry chef, looking for uh, front of house management. Lots of good people. Dan. And if Joe is here, I'd say, no. Joe, thank you guys so much. There is no question. You're both unstoppable. you got to get to your next meeting, so I'm going to let you go. Thank you so much. Cheers. Absolutely. There's another episode wrapped up here at Restaurant Unstoppable. Special thanks to our guests today, Dan Seidner and Joe Minch, for coming on, sharing your story, and accommodating me. Honestly, uh, we were supposed to have two episodes today with both Dan and Joe separately. But as we all know in the restaurant industry, our days can get away from us. Things can get busy. And with all that was going on over at Black Shoe Hospitality, these two dudes, Joe and Dan, made time for me. And I just can't say thank you enough for for squeezing me in. Uh, We... We combined two episodes together. We only had Joe for half the conversation and we had technical difficulties with the microphone and Dan was under constraints, time constraints as well, but we still pulled off an awesome conversation and I cannot say thank you guys. Thank you enough to you guys. I can't do it without my guests. So if you all want more podcasts just like this one and more content, we're looking to really grow our YouTube channel and just take this thing to the next level. If you want it, if you want to see it happen, if you're finding value, please support this podcast. There's a few ways you can support the podcast. You can support our sponsors. You can use the affiliate links. Anytime a tool or service is recommended on the show, head over to the show notes, use the links in the show notes that supports the show so much. Share this podcast with anyone and everyone, you know, aspiring to be great in the industry. If you have not yet subscribe to youtube.com slash restaurant unstoppable. Lastly, we are still rolling strong over at restaurant unstoppable network. I am in the process of bringing on a full-time community manager and really I'm at this point with restaurant unstoppable network where I realize if you want to grow, you can't do it alone. And I'm trying to kind of get out of the way of the amazing people that I've come across in the past nine years to give them a platform to stand on to share their knowledge and to start really sort building a, 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 a team, a culture around what we've learned here at Restaurant Unstoppable and this mission to inspire, empower, and transform the industry. So head over to restaurantstoppablenetwork.com, join that community, and then special thanks to Jared Parisi over at Sumatria Podcast for helping me make this podcast possible. That's it for today, guys. Until next time, peace out.